In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for him. While we put ourselves in the presence of our Lord, truly present in the Blessed Sacrament, and on this feast day, probably the only feast day that actually celebrates the conversion of a saint, and that's St. Paul. Today, the church celebrates with the Gloria the conversion of St. Paul. Why is he the only saint? Well, he wrote most of the New Testament, or a big chunk of it. And he was the follower of Jesus who brought the gospel into deep into the Gentile world. Tradition has it that he may have gotten as far as Spain. And he's a saint that is a paradigm for every follower of Christ. There are certain saints that are for complete public consumption. Some are not, like a great saint who's a hermit, who lives somewhere in a little hut in the woods. We're called to love God the way that hermit does, but not the lifestyle. But St. Paul is someone we need to imitate. And he is that apostle who digests, he elaborates, he interprets the words of Jesus. And how do we go about this meditation? Well, imitating him, preaching Christ. But first let's look briefly at his conversion. His conversion is similar to the conversion of the characters of the gospel. This guy was a bad hombre. He initiated the persecution of the church. He initiated, he initiated the witness of martyrdom for the church. He orchestrated deaths of those first followers of Christ. The most famous one is St. Stephen. He was the overseer of his stoning to death. He approved it, he legislated it, he ordered it. He was a fanatic, very young, very capable, very smart, and a brilliant man, a brilliant theologian of the Jewish law. He was a Pharisee. And he studied under the greatest mind of that time among the Jewish people, the Rabbi Gamaliel. He's even listed in the Acts of the Apostles as a, as a great teacher, and he studied under him. And so he knew his stuff, and you could tell he knows his stuff by reading his, the New Testament. And what's a little bit of a mystery, should have he known better? Yes. I mean, killing people, last time I checked, is kind of an obvious commandment of the natural law, and it's a commandment revealed by God to Moses. Thou shalt not kill. But he thought he was at liberty to throw 
women and children and stone people who he thought were heretical or blasphemous. And so he, he should have known better. And he's the first one to say that in his first epistle. He says that if someone violates the commandments, the natural law, he knows or she knows because we have that innate light of what's right and wrong. And my point here is what elicited his conversion was not a debate, not soul-searching. I mean, he was hot to trot. He was so good at persecuting the church, he cleaned out the whole city of Jerusalem. He had nothing else to do, so he asked permission from the high priest. And he rode the equivalent of a Mercedes. He had a black stallion. Uh, tradition has He was on a horse. You know, horses were tough to get hold of. You, you know, camel, donkey, mule. But you didn't have that kind of wherewithal to ride a horse. He did. And, you know, Damascus is kind of far from Jerusalem, so equivalent to the train or something. And uh, so he, he's heading towards Damascus to do the same thing, to clean the city out, these early Christians. And he's the last apostle to actually see Jesus. He saw Jesus face to face. And that experience of, of seeing the Lord and hearing the Lord, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so the conversion event is a consequence of him meeting personally Jesus Christ, seeing Jesus Christ personally. And that encounter and those words, those loving words, they're not castigating words. Saul, Saul, why are you doing this to me? Why hurting me? And so our Lord is telling him, you need to see the commandments in terms of a personal relationship with me. These are not dry ethical norms, but avenues to connect with me. Why are you doing this to me? And it's hard to kick against the goat. Paul, you're going to, Saul, you're going to lose the game. This conversion experience, as we read through the New Testament, stayed with him to the duration of his life. He always had his feet on the ground. He was a great mystic. He saw miraculous inroads in the work of evangelization, converting the Gentiles, establishing, founding churches all over the what is now modern-day Turkey, along the coast and into modern-day Greece. He always had, in the back of his mind, in his heart, I initiated this persecution. That wouldn't end until 313. I persecuted the church. I was responsible for arrests and deaths. It could never, never left them. Virtually every epistle that is there. And so he, there was a, a, a deep humility there in his life. And he realized that we evangelize by giving people a similar experience that he himself had. Paul knew that. 
that it is, it's a matter of preaching Christ. You notice that Paul doesn't say, I'm going to pe preach the Ten Commandments. I mean, he's totally behind it. Or I'm going to give some lessons in ethics. He's totally behind it. No, I preach Christ crucified. Put on Jesus Christ. That was his, that, that was his main drive. And are we called to imitate that? Yes. I mean, we can't bring this to prayer enough. And I think a healthy, a healthy inferiority complex would do us some good. Now, let me qualify. Don't walk out. Uh, doesn't sound too good, does it? St. Jose Maria, many years ago now, 1970, he had reputation of being a saint in his lifetime, and he went to Mexico to, for a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Guadalupe. And he, it was a, a very special event in his own life, and his, he was in that, in that, among many of his intentions, he was praying for the fall of communism in the satellite countries of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, and many, many intentions. Many intentions were there. He was praying for the next pope. I think St. John Paul was a fruit of his prayer. But anyway, he got together with some Americans. And uh, he's, he knew that, you know, he was in the twilight of his life. And he said, you need more heart. He said, you've got to love people more. He said, you, you're exemplary. And I'm paraphrasing. And some of these people are still here. And uh, they were very young at the time. Uh, I'm not that old. It wasn't me. Um, so he, uh, he was saying, you know, you're exemplary with work. You work really hard. And you get a lot done. And you're organizing. That's a good thing. He said, but you need more warmth. He said, you, you, you put work in front of people. You don't want to do that. You want to put people first. He said, that's what I want to leave you with. You know, this is a special encounter. I don't know if I'll see you again. But think about it. You Americans need more heart. And so when I was uh, living in Rome myself, that admonition was still fresh in the collective minds of people in touch with Opus Dei. And when I was living in Rome, his successor, who's, all, who's, a, who's a blessed now, we would, any questions? And I, all us Americans would say, yeah, what do we do to have more heart? And after a while, he kind of said, stop it now. <laughs> he said, uh, you do have heart. He was just making a point. Uh, now, we got to move on here, because every guy was doing it. How can we have more heart? And I'm sure I said the same thing. You know, I know we don't have enough heart. And then he, he, he'd stop you. No more. He said, no more. You have a lot of heart. You need to work on it, but you have, don't, don't think you don't have heart. But, I, but we know that. I mean, we have heart, you know, not to feather our caps here. But we, this is an individualistic country, and it's getting even worse. I mean, we have an idolatry of work and an idolatry of achievement. And, and people are not practical. You know, this wasting time with people, quote unquote, is not practical. Uh, getting things done, getting things accomplished, asserting ourselves, improving ourselves, experiences as much as we can. And so 
that's what I mean by a healthy inferiority complex. Well, as a culture, we need to deal with people more and love people more and be more open to people. And using that number, but with a lot of prudence, precisely because we're Americans, St. Josemaria said, okay, 10 to 15 friends, four to five, you're doing more of an intense work of apostle or evangelization because they're open to it. What, what, what's the spirit behind it? Do I have to put together a scrapbook of my 15 friends? Or do I have, you know, or my photo gallery, you know, under the heading of my work of evangelization? You know, I have 11 friends. Can you be my 12th friend? Maybe tomorrow I'll meet my 13th friend. Can you be my 13th friend? Because in the St. Josemaria said I have to have 15. I'm only up to 12. Or I only have two. I'm really hurting. I need, let me see if I can get three. No, we have to love more people. That's what that means. It's not, it's not a numbers game. And so I want to pray about this, this point here. I came across from crisis passing by. The homily here is called Finding Peace in the Heart of Christ. And St. Josemaria says, the only thing that matters is Jesus. It is Christ we must talk about not ourselves. We go to the Blessed Sacrament, where Jesus is. Well, what do you mean by that? What, what do these words mean? Well, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. The light is always on. You're a branch of the vine. The branch is always on the vine. What does it mean, though, Jesus, to always be talking about you? Any of you are familiar with uh, Frank Sheed, who wrote Theology and Sanity, and Society and Sanity, all sorts of interesting books to know Christ Jesus. I rec highly recommend those books. But he was, uh, during back in the day, maybe in the 40s, he would be a soapbox, soapbox preacher. So he would just stand in a public road, public square, you know, main thoroughfare, and and speak, and answer questions, and get into debates. No, I don't think God's calling you to do that. You know, you see that very clearly in your prayer, but consult anyway, if you do see it in your prayer. Make sure it's endorsed by a little bit of wisdom outside yourself. Or like this lady in the CTA this morning. She was preaching the whole time. You know, the whole trajectory. And, uh, she was commenting on um, that the world rejected him. So she was commenting on the world rejecting him. The world was made through him, and the world knew him not. So she was waning and waxing eloquently throughout the ride, really loud, too. And she didn't have much of a response. But anyway, I was, at least it was, good it was good stuff. It was real good stuff. But she was really shouting the whole time. But... Is that what he means? No, please don't do that. But it does mean we should always be preaching him. And I want to use, and I do it with a little bit of reluctance because it's used a lot and it could be misinterpreted. Morally certain that you've heard this. It's a popular quotation from St. Francis of Assisi, one of the great evangelizers of the church. And he said that we should always preach the gospel and once in a while talk about it. 
So it could be misinterpreted that I just keep my mouth shut. I don't get into controversies. I don't state my opinion. I don't, I don't challenge people. That's not what he means. What does it mean to always preach the gospel? That our persona, that's why our Lord says you're the light of the world. He doesn't say you're the spokesperson of God. You know, in his, it's kind of interesting in the images he gives, it's, he never mentions speech. Even though speech is very important. He, talks, he says you've got to be 11. He talks more about presence than speaking. Your light, that's a presence. The presence of the light dissipates darkness. Your salt, your presence, converts the food, makes it taste good. Your leaven in the mass, it changes the texture of the dough. Your branch of the vine, you express what's in the vine. But never that many images of speaking. It's images of presence, how presence changes the environment. And what is special about the leaven, and what's special about the light, and what's special about the salt? And what does fruitfulness really mean? The common thread is the, the heart of Jesus. We must always be preaching Christ. Our presence is preaching. Our witness is preaching, even if we don't talk about anything spiritual, are very present. Maybe this would help. This comes from St. Paul. And uh, how did I come across this? Well, it's kind of known. It read often in Advent, but that wasn't why I chose this in the context of our topic. I was talking to a gentleman. I was already prepared to give him advice. Because he was, so, you know, I'm, I get anxious about this. I don't know what it was, but he was anxious about something. He said, well, you know, uh, maybe, maybe it was his wife. I don't know. Yeah, but someone said, open up to Philippians 4.4. So he did. So, you know, I'm still waiting for a little gap in his conversation so I could share my wisdom. Anyway, I didn't have to. St. Paul did all the work in volumes. He said, well, what do you think of this? This is what my friend told me, or my wife told me, I don't remember. He said, I have to think about this and reflect on this. Let's reconstruct the context of what I'm going to read. It's to the Philippians. In those olden days, the church was not, okay, there's St. Uh, Matthew's church. There was no, no temple. You would it's, it's function like this center here. You congregate a certain evening, there would be an elder there who would teach uh, and he would give you you want to call it the circle, go right ahead but he gave his circle or her circle there was elder guy, older women who would teach the faith and they would have classes, that's where RCA came from, that and you'd meet at someone's house, well you'd get killed if you had a church so, and you'd say mass in secret and you would use a big house because a lot of people would come to that house and uh, maybe get a free meal as well. And so they'd congregate there, and so the church there was a moral entity. You had about maybe 50 families in Philippi who were Christian. You didn't have that many. And Paul would write letters to these different groups of people to give them formation. So that's how they were formed. 
And the elder would elaborate on his letters. And you'd have priests, not too many of them, who would go to these different places to say mass and to anoint and do all that. And so this is what he, this is what he read to me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let all people know your kindness. There's different translations. One is kindness, and the other is forbearance. I think it means the same thing. Let the, all people know your kindness. Notice he doesn't, I don't know if he's ever said that. Make sure, and we're not being anti-doctrinal or anti-theological, but I don't know if he's ever said, get into heavy theological discussions, even though he's, his writings are heavy theological discussions. He doesn't say that. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let all people know your kindness. The Lord is at hand, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. How relevant all that is. So I don't know what to say to the guy. I said, well, there you go. He t I said, he took the words right out of my mouth. Is that what you're going to tell me? Well, now that you read it, yes. <laughs> and that is how I always preach. And once in a while, I need to talk about it. Doesn't mean I never talk about it, but it's more about witnessing what? What is this light? Let's, let's, let's pare it down. What does that exactly mean, this light? It means what Paul just said. It's not the first time he talks about joy. That runs also through his writings. That's what Paul did. And if... And he, when he came to visit those churches, what did they notice? Well, they noticed his, his joy. Because joy, Thomas Aquinas, great theologian, great philosopher, he says that the salient property of charity, the expression of charity always is in the form of joy. We know that. I mean, that, that's the common gift of tongues. That always... Everybody, unless they're crazy, they want to see someone genuinely joyful. Not a put-on, not an artificial smile, but someone who's genuinely joyful, which doesn't mean always laughing and backslapping. It's compatible with tears and seriousness. But it's, there's always that, that joy. And have no anxiety, that other fruit of the Holy Spirit, that peace. The... Well, let's just... Take advantage of her. Um, this uh, woman in Opus Dei, she's now in heaven. She's going to be beatified. Well, I'm always eager to read stories of very ordinary people who get beatified. There's not tons of them, but you know, some are on the docket. Some are, you know, up at bat. They haven't gotten, you know, venerables. They're getting there, you know. No, you can't say a requiem mass for them, so that's, that's, they've been declared heroic in their discipleship. But now they've got to work a miracle. Anyway, this Guadalupe beat out her, the other girl who seemed like she was 
in the running to be beatified, but I don't know, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I guess she didn't work a good enough miracle yet, you know? Uh, favors don't count. I mean, I used to report these miracles, and they say, no, that's not a miracle, it's a favor. I don't, I don't know, what's the difference? Well, favor is, you know, you can't prove it scientifically. I actually saw a miracle by Blessed Alvaro. I, I don't know, having 500 cancerous tumors in your lungs and your liver riddled with cancer, melanoma, you know, I was already preparing the homily for this woman's funeral. And uh, she was totally cured. And so she wanted to be the miracle for the beatification. And she didn't cut it. Um, and she was a little bit perturbed. What, what do you need to get, to get this miracle approved by the church? It was approved by, one thing is being approved by the church, but the other thing is that this is the miracle for the beatification. So well, if this isn't, what is? I said, well, someone died and he was dead for an hour and came back to life. <laughs> and, and, you know, and he had all sorts of illnesses, and that, that, that was kind of the bonus prize. He said, yeah, it's kind of hard to beat that if someone's dead and he comes back to life. That's no fair. I said, well, look, yeah, take it up with God, you know. So this, but this woman who is going to be beatified was extremely, in lifestyle, love was not ordinary. We're called to extraordinary love. But teacher, did domestic work, uh, worked for office day for a little while, but, you know, never will make the headlines, you know, very ordinary. But her salient quality was she was kind of fun. She was a lot of fun. She was, she was happy. She was joyful and, um, and, and kind. And uh, she got growled at once because the telephone was ringing right behind the chapel door in that particular center. And she didn't answer the phone and in Spanish fashion. They said, well, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you answer the phone? Because I didn't hear it. Um, and she was lost in prayer. So... I'm not giving you any bright ideas, but um, <laughs> but that's she she took her prayer very very seriously. I feel a little bit guilty because she never dozed off. She made sure she didn't doze off, so she I don't know change positions or walk around or kneel down or whatever. So she would always be alert in her prayer, and it was something she really looked forward to. Um, because this joy is not, I'd be unfair, hop to it, let's hop to it and be joyful always. It's not that simple. It is in function of my relationship with our Lord. It's in function of piety to have that kind of joy and to have that kind of kindness because this, our, our love, it does, it, we're not the originators of love. Our Lord is the heart of Christ. And so we, we, we evangelizers, so we, this evangelizer has to bail out, I'm over time. Uh, we have to be like St. Paul, and Paul says, put on Jesus Christ, which means in our language, receive the Eucharist, adoration of the Eucharist, mental prayer, the rosary, put on Jesus Christ, so that we rejoice, and everybody sees our kindness. And I think that's what St. Jose Maria means and St. Francis, St. Paul, that we always preach. We, we witness who our Lord is because he is that good news of great joy. Mary, we go to you, and we notice that when you share your inner sentiments in the Magnificat, the first thing you say 
is that you are joyful. That's your salient quality to pray for us, cause of our joy, that we preach your Son by our joy and kindness. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, and my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Holy Mary, hope, handmaid of the Lord.